Hello and welcome to the History of Modern Greece. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George, and our theme music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. This is a podcast that covers the events from the fall of ancient Greece to the modern day. This is episode 6, Alphas, Betas, and the Polis. At the beginning of the 9th century BCE, the Greek Dark Age came to an end, with the adoption of the Phoenician alphabet. Until this event, the Greek tablets were written hundreds of years before this period. Literally, the ability to write was lost, and it took almost 400 years for them to learn how to do it again. These last 400 years were also colder years, and according to the Greenland temperature chart, the Minoan Warm Period peaked around the year 1350 BCE. And then temperatures plummeted, and continued to plummet, until right around the time the Greeks adopted the Phoenician alphabet. Luckily for the Greeks, the Phoenicians were seafaring people, who really picked up steam after the collapse of the Mycenaeans. And once the Greeks adopted the Phoenician alphabet, literacy spread like wildfire throughout the Hellenic world. And this is when Homer's Iliad and Hesiod's Theogony were written down for the first time. Before now, it was just an oral story the elders would tell the younger men of the village. A little background on the Phoenicians is called for, as they contributed so much to Western civilization. After all, it is their alphabet that we are using today. Up until now, the region was using hieroglyphs to write, and those were complicated characters with a unique symbol for a unique word. And it took a professional lifetime to master the art of scribing. The Egyptians used hieroglyphics, the Hittites used hieroglyphs, and even Linear B Greek was written in hieroglyphs. But the Phoenician alphabet was phonetic, as it just had a character for the sound your mouth can make. If you can write the sound, then you can figure out how to spell anything by just saying it slowly before writing. Plus, there were far fewer characters to remember, which meant it was way quicker and easier to master. Once a civilization saw how efficient the Phoenician alphabet was, they ditched the old and adopted the new. Phoenicia was not a single unified country or kingdom, but a collection of several independent city-states, and they were all located on the eastern Mediterranean Sea, modern-day Lebanon, and their most prominent city was Tyre. The Phoenicians descended from the Canaanites, But as the Hebrew and Hittite people conquered and assimilated Canaan, the city-states that survived the slaughter became the free cities of the Phoenicians. So that means the Phoenicians were a Semitic people, just like the Hebrews, the Arabs, and the Egyptian people. While the Mycenaean civilization collapsed during the Dark Ages, the Phoenicians rose to prominence and even took over as the dominant seafaring power in the Mediterranean Sea. Because the Phoenicians originally came from Lebanon, which was mostly mountains, they relied on ships to survive. And once the Mycenaeans disappeared and were replaced by the Dorians, the Phoenicians were able to expand their naval power, and within a few centuries, they became known as the best shipbuilders in the world. Phoenician ships were the first to employ battering rams, and were also the first to have keels. Phoenicians also used a sealant to caulk between the planks, making their vessels waterproof. 
Their boat-making skills were so great that they are even mentioned in the Hebrew book of Ezekiel. And it wasn't just the functionality and aesthetic craftsmanship of the Phoenician ships, it was also the design of the cargo ships, specifically the amount of cargo each ship could carry. The hulls were designed for maximum capacity. They had wide hulls and could fit several tons of goods in each ship. At first, the Phoenicians rode their vessels along the coast, using visual landmarks for navigation and anchoring every night. And this is how they started, short voyages close to the shore and in the vicinity of their homeland. But the skills grew better with each generation, and soon the navigators were cutting corners and rowing straight out to sea and linking up with charted lands across the open water. This brought the navigators' attention to the stars and allowed them to navigate strictly by starlight alone. This allowed them to cut straight across the sea without worrying about losing their direction or getting turned around in the middle of the water. They knew which way was west and which way was east. They knew the currents of the Mediterranean and soon they became the most dominant trading empire in the world. Once their skills grew strong enough, they ventured out all the way west past the Pillars of Hercules, where the coast of Morocco nearly touches the coast of Spain. The Atlantic Ocean was a rough sea that no sailor dared enter. It was considered suicide to even attempt voyaging beyond the Pillars of Hercules. There were no landmarks, the waves were crazy, sometimes reaching 30 feet tall, and there were storms that could rip the sails right off of vessels. But the Phoenicians did not let that stop them. They developed skills that allowed them to sail comfortably beyond the Pillars of Hercules and into the Atlantic Ocean, where they veered north and sailed to Great Britain. Great Britain was a well-known source of tin, and carrying boatloads of ore back to the Mediterranean made them a powerful and wealthy nation. The Phoenicians dominated the trade market. Now we look back at this era and tend to picture the civilizations trading clothes and metals and grains. But there was one product the Phoenicians dominated, and that was the sea snail. There was a particular sea snail that secreted a vibrant purple ink. And once the Phoenicians learned how to harvest this purple ink and turn it into dye for textiles, they started a new trade that no one knew existed before, and that was the purple dye trade. If you think the names Phoenician and purple are similar, then you are correct. There are many scholars who think the name Phoenician means land of the purple. The purple dye was worth its weight in silver. It truly became a royal color. Their wealth and power and trade led to the formation of many colonies throughout the region. And one of the most famous Phoenician colonies was named Carthage, which was located on the northern tip of Africa in modern-day Tunisia. The most important part of the Phoenician Empire that still affects us today was nothing they carried in their cargo ships. It wasn't their boat-making skills or their navigation skills. The most important aspect of the Phoenicians that still affects us today was their alphabet. The Phoenician alphabet is the ancestor to our modern-day alphabet. But we didn't know this until recently. You see, in 1928, in modern-day Lebanon, a farmer was out tending his field when he saw this large rock in the way of his plow. He went to lift this rock up and move it out of the way when he discovered that the rock was actually hiding a small cavity. 
On further inspection, he realized this small cavity in the ground was actually the entrance to an ancient tomb. I don't know how, either by telephone, telegraph, or by word of mouth, a team of archaeologists arrived on the farm and excavated the tomb. Inside the tomb were many clay tablets. This wasn't unheard of, and many tablets contained cuneiform writing, which was the original form of writing in ancient times. As they categorized the clay tablets and cuneiform writing, they discovered that some of the tablets had a style of cuneiform that was unrecognizable. But it wasn't just the clay tablets. There were also weapons that had engravings with the same unrecognizable cuneiform. Of course, the scholars pounced on this discovery, and they started to break down the different characters in the language, and very quickly they discovered that there were too few characters to be a traditional cuneiform alphabet. They were able to determine several key details. First, there were too few symbols for there to be any vowels, which hinted towards a Semitic alphabet. And second, these tablets dated to around 1200 BC, which was the beginning of the collapse of the Bronze Age. Scholars already knew this site was once a major Phoenician city called Ugarit, which was referenced by the Egyptians. Unfortunately, for the people living in the city of Ugarit, the Sea Peoples came and burned the place to the ground. It was a fate many cities suffered at the end of the Bronze Age. And thanks to this discovery in 1928, scholars were able to determine that this was the beginning of a new form of writing. The Phoenicians had been trading with the many different cultures in the Middle East and Egypt, and slowly they started to adapt their cuneiform writing into something that resembled a proto-alphabet. So using the influence of Egyptian hieroglyphs and Middle Eastern cuneiform, they developed their own alphabet. This wasn't the first Semitic alphabet. In fact, there were several others. But what separated this one from the rest was the fact that there were 30 characters instead of 22. And several decades later, another archaeological discovery produced clay tablets with the entire Phoenician alphabet in alphabetical order. It would be no different than us writing the entire alphabet in order today, from A to Z. And why wouldn't such a tablet exist? The ancient people needed to practice their alphabet as much as we do today. The weird part is, this alphabet was very similar to our modern-day alphabet. And if you took out those extra eight characters that were added to the Semitic alphabet that didn't exist in any other Semitic languages, it looked almost identical to our modern-day alphabet. The order of their alphabet was as follows. A, B, D, H, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, V, plus all the other letters that aren't used anymore. But this was it. This was the smoking gun. It was obvious to the scholars that they were looking at the direct ancestor to the modern-day alphabet. Now, because the city of Ugarit was destroyed, this alphabet was kind of lost with it. But other Phoenician cities did survive, and they used the same alphabet. But they dropped the rest of the extra characters, the weird ones, and they stuck with the traditional 22 characters of the traditional Semitic languages. And as the Phoenicians grew and dominated the trade network, their written language spread with it. 
Now the Phoenicians could write any word they came across just by sounding it out. All was well for the Phoenician traders except for one small detail. In order to write cuneiform styled documents, you typically needed to press markers into wet clay and then dry it in a kiln. But the Phoenician ships, as great as they were, did not have a kiln. In fact, they didn't have clay tablets at all, mostly because it was a waste of space on their ships. And also, it was a great fire hazard. Instead, they had papyrus, which was as good as paper. But cuneiform doesn't translate that well to paper, so they needed to develop a new style of writing that allowed for ink to swirl around on the paper. And with this process, the cuneiform alphabet evolved from straight lines into a more swirl-like alphabet. And this is where the characters we use today start to become recognizable. As the Phoenicians grew in power and influence, their writing came into contact with other civilizations they traded with. At first, it was other local Semitic tribes that adopted their written language. One of these early tribes to see the advantage of the alphabet was the Hebrew people, another Semitic people. And think about this for a moment. For eons, your tribal history, the tales, and epic struggles of your ancestors were all told orally from one generation to the next. And now you have the ability to write that down. It was like magic. These Semitic cultures wrote from right to left, like all Semitic people do, and they also excluded vowels, which was another Semitic tradition. But they also had names for each character. And this isn't so different from us today. We have the name A for the first letter and B for the second letter. It literally was the easiest way to write. Up until this point, if you wanted to write something down, you had to memorize the character for every individual word. This was insanely difficult and could require one to memorize hundreds, if not thousands, of individual characters. But now they only needed to memorize a few characters. No more than 22, maybe 26 to be precise. Because it was so simple, it spread like wildfire throughout the Phoenician trading network. And although the first to adopt the alphabet were other Semitic tribes, the next group of people that encountered this simple method of writing were the Greeks. Now we have looked at several sources on this subject, and there are some who say that the Syrians might have had contact with the Phoenician alphabet before the Greeks, and that Ney may have been the first to introduce vowels to the alphabet. The Phoenicians brought luxury items from the Near East to the land of the Greeks, where they traded in raw materials, such as iron ore and human slaves. And during these transactions, the Greek merchants watched the Phoenicians mark down their trade on a piece of papyrus. Now at first, they were just curious. But when the first Greek man took the initiative to learn the alphabet and truly realized the potential, they quickly adopted it into their own way of life. Around 800 BCE, the Greeks started writing their own receipts with the Phoenician alphabet, but used it to spell out their own language. And once this took hold, it was only a matter of time before the old storytellers and oral historians started writing down everything they could. This also marks the end of the Greek Dark Age and the beginning of the Archaic period. One major difference between the Greeks and the rest of the other cultures who adopted this alphabet was the fact that the Greeks were a proto-Indo-European tribe. 
Their language sounded different. There were different sounds that need to be represented, and in order to make these sounds, they were going to have to adjust the characters a little bit. The first major change the Greeks made was the introduction of vowels. I find it crazy today that a language could exist without vowels, and apparently the Greeks thought as well. And that was the first major change they made to the alphabet. But it wasn't as simple as, hey, let's create new letters for our vowels. In fact, it was a little simpler. The Phoenicians had so many consonants, consonants that no Greek ever spoke, which meant there were existing letters already up for grabs. The first letter they took was olive, which sounded kind of guttural and is hard to describe in our language, but the Greeks found it worked well with the vowel sound ah, so they adopted the character for olive and turned it into alpha. Now they had alpha and beta, or A and B. And today, we tell our kids to memorize their ABCs. Well, back then, they told their kids to memorize their alphas and betas, which is where we get the word alphabet. Finally, the Greeks were ready to enter the world stage again. But the Greek world had changed a lot since the collapse of the Bronze Age. In fact, 400 years have passed. Now the Greek cities were starting to flourish. Populations were starting to rise. And this had a lot to do with the global temperatures rising and food being harvested with higher yields. Life was starting to look good again. Obviously, the Greeks didn't just rise up and unite like many other civilizations in the Middle East. The Greek region was a land of mountains, volcanoes, and seas. Cities were usually founded within small river valleys with a finite amount of land to farm and to build cities. This resulted in each city developing into its own independent state, or city-state. The Greek word for this was polis, and polis was such an influential word in our language that it is the origin of our modern-day words metropolis, police, polite, politician, policy, politics, and Tripoli, literally meaning tri-cities or three cities. At this time, there were many Greek polis that were starting to thrive. Some of them were new, and others were built on top of the ashes of old cities from the Bronze Age that had been burned to the ground by the Sea Peoples. Each city developed its own unique identity and culture. This is also the period which gives us a familiar view into what we would call Classical Greece. So we feel it is only fair to start off with the history and origin of several prominent polis of this time period. But first, a quick geography lesson. Greece is a country in Europe. I hope everybody knows that one already. Greece is also a peninsula that stretches out of the southern portion of Eastern Europe. Europe has several peninsulas. The first one on the far left is the Iberian Peninsula, which is modern-day Spain and Portugal. The middle peninsula is the Italic Peninsula, which is modern-day Italy. And the peninsula on the right is the Balkan Peninsula. Now the Balkan Peninsula is where we find the modern-day nation of Greece. And directly to the right of Greece, across the Aegean Sea, is the nation of Turkey. Now before Google Earth, it looked like Greece and Turkey were totally different continents. But if you look at the Aegean Sea with Google Earth, you'll see that the water is not that deep. During the last ice age, the Aegean Sea was almost non-existent. I mean, there were still deep bodies of water, but not like today. 
you could practically walk right across it. It would have been a similar situation to the Bering Strait that connected Alaska to Russia during the height of the last ice age. All the little islands in the Aegean Sea were the tops of large mountains that have all but disappeared under the rising water. When the last ice age ended abruptly, the seawater rose and the valley between Greece and Turkey flooded. The large mountains became large islands and then small islands, and still the water kept rising. When the sea levels grew deep enough, they broke over the mountains of the Bosphorus and flooded what is now the Black Sea. Now humans were living in these valleys at the time and would have had to flee with all of their belongings as their homeland was washed away by the rapidly rising tides. Some people would have taken refuge on low hills, only to be swallowed up completely by the rising ocean. The part of Greece that remained above water was nothing more than mountains and steep valleys. Terrible places for humans to settle and farm. But there were small valleys between these large mountains that allowed for small settlements to prop up. Now the valleys were few and far between, and the mountains in between created physical barriers that prevented the cities from growing much bigger or uniting into a single force. And these living conditions gave rise to the polis state. The oldest polis in Greece was the polis of Thebes. Thebes was a northern city founded right in the center of mainland Greece. It is located in a valley in central Greece in a region known as Boeotia. Thebes is an ancient city that dates back to the Bronze Age. Thebes is also the city attributed to many of the ancient myths, such as Odepus Rex. Legend has it that a Phoenician king named Cadmus founded the city after the oracle of Delphi told him to follow a cow into the wild until it stopped to eat. Once the cow stopped to eat, he killed the cow, sacrificing its flesh to the gods, and erected the city of Thebes. Even the legendary Hercules came from the city of Thebes. Because there were actual myths that took place in the city of Thebes, it gave him a form of street cred with the other polis in Greece. Just like most of the cities in the late Bronze Age, it was burnt to the ground with the destruction of the sea peoples. Archaeologists have uncovered that a layer of ash in the soil marks the ultimate destruction of the city at the end of the Bronze Age. And below that they have found Minoan pottery, proving there was active trade between the ancient people of Thebes and the Minoan civilization. To the south of Boeotia is the region of Attica, which is separated by another mountain chain. The region of Attica is another plain of flat land where the city of Athens was erected. The Athenians boasted about being the natives of their homeland, whereas most of the other Greek city-states were inhabited by the invading Dorians from the Bronze Age. The Ionian Greeks used to inhabit the southern half of mainland Greece, but were forced out of their homes when the Dorians invaded. Most of the fleeing Ionians sought refuge in Athens, and were later relocated to the small islands in the Aegean Sea. Unlike the other major city-states, Athens was never sacked during the collapse of the Bronze Age. Now, Athenians like to brag that it was because they were superior to the invading armies, but in reality, it's more likely that Athens was so small and off the radar that it was just overlooked and missed during the entire Bronze Age collapse. Its name derives from the goddess of wisdom, Athena, who became the city's patron goddess after a contest with Poseidon. The two gods competed for who would get the honor of becoming the patron god of the city, 
and offered gifts to the Athenians. Poseidon hit the ground with his trident and created a spring, showing that he would offer significant naval power. Athena, on the other hand, offered the olive tree, a symbol of prosperity and peace. The Athenians, led by King Cecrops I, decided to take Athena's gift instead, thus making her the patron goddess. If you travel a little further south from Attica, the mainland of Greece ends. One of the major valleys in mainland Greece was flooded by the rising waters during the end of the last ice age, and it almost severed the bottom half of Greece right off. But a small, narrow strip of land was high enough to connect the southern tip of Greece to the mainland in the north. This narrow strip of land was the only way between the north and the south, and it became known as the Isthmus of Corinth. This land bridge became a vital piece of land to control, and the settlement quickly grew into a thriving city. This place has been inhabited by humans for over 6,500 years, and during the time of the Mycenaeans was likely home to a major palace state, like the one in Knossos. However, like many cities during the end of the Bronze Age, it was sacked and burned to the ground, and the residents fled. It wasn't inhabited again until the year 900 BCE when the Dorians resettled the area. Corinth was the gatekeeper city. If any army from the north wanted to cross into the southern peninsula of Greece, they had to cross the borders of Corinth. And likewise, if any army from the south wanted to march north, they had to pass the kingdom of Corinth. This was a dangerous place to be, but also a valuable trading location. After crossing the Isthmus in the great city of Corinth, the peninsula opens up into a huge landmass which was known in ancient times as the Peloponnese. This large chunk of land was mostly made up of mountains, but a fertile valley, only 50 kilometers from the city of Corinth, allowed a settlement to thrive and grow, until they settled the polis of Argos. This valley may have been smaller than the other plains of Boeotia and Attica, but the running rivers and streams from the mountains provided the city with endless amounts of fresh water, which allowed it to flourish and prosper. Argos had been populated by humans for thousands of years already, and during the Bronze Age, it prospered like the other great cities of the Mycenaean period. But just like the rest of its contemporaries, it was sacked during the collapse of the Bronze Age. However, the city was never fully abandoned, and people continued to live there throughout the Greek Dark Ages. Even though the Peloponnese was mostly made up of large mountains, there were several fertile valleys surrounding the coastline. If you traveled clockwise around the peninsula, you would come to a valley in the southeast corner. This valley is known as Laconia, and in the valley of Laconia, the famous city of Sparta was founded. Sparta and all of Laconia were Dorian. Sparta was originally founded before the Bronze Age and was even mentioned by Homer and the Linear B tablets dating back to Mycenaean Greece. This small valley on the far south end of mainland Greece had a river that ran down from the mountains named the Eurotus. It is along this river that the ancient city of Sparta was founded. The valley was guarded by large mountains on three sides, which acted as a natural defense against invading armies. The bay gave them a calm place to harbor their boats and allow them access to the sea for fishing and travel. If you left Sparta and traveled west along the coast, another valley opened up out of the mountains. 
This valley faced the southwest and was also protected on three sides by mountains. The valley was very similar to Laconia and Sparta and also had a very fertile piece of land along the Pamissos River Basin. Now instead of thinking of this river as a solid river that flows through the center of a narrow valley, picture a river that splits up into numerous different paths as it winds its way through the fertile plain and empties into the Mycenaean Gulf. There were also many other rivers and creeks that flowed out of the mountains and through this valley, which made the land very fertile and habitable for early modern humans. In fact, there is record from the ancient Greeks of the people who lived there before the Proto-Indo-Europeans arrived and colonized it. The humans who lived there before the arrival of the Greeks were called the Pelasgians, and the first Greeks who colonized the valley were the Aeolians. This land was very wealthy during the height of the Mycenaean period, and just like everywhere else in the region, it fell to the hordes of sea peoples and was ultimately invaded by the Dorians shortly after. After leaving the fertile valley of Messenia and continuing clockwise around the coast of the Peloponnese, the next region on the west coast of the Peloponnese was called Elis. Now, Elis was another fertile valley on the northwest corner of the Peloponnese. It was surrounded by mountains. Elis had its own polis and rivalries between local cities. But what makes Elis the most popular is the fact that it was home to the original Olympic Games. Now, if you continue clockwise around the coast of the Peloponnese, you get to the top of the landmass, or the north coast. This region is called Achaea, and if you travel a little further to the east, you reach the northeast corner of the Peloponnese and arrive back at the city of Corinth. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.